Hello, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. On the show this week... I speak to Helen Fitzwilliam, a documentary maker, about the mafia in Italy. And I discuss transatlantic relations with Xenia Wickett. Agnes, hello again. They've given us another episode. They have allowed us back in the media studio, Ben. <laughs> it's a joy to be here. How wow. are you this yeah, week? Yeah, very well, very well. It's busy as always, but uh, yeah, good. How are you? Good, yeah. The latest issue of The World Today came out recently, and now we've got to do another one, to be honest. And how's international affairs? Very good. We've been working on a new virtual issue this month, which takes a look at our archive and uh, particularly how we've covered the United Nations over, over time. But I suppose we should probably move on to uh, who we spoke to this week. So, Agnes, who did, you, who did you interview? So I spoke to Helen Fitzwilliam, who is a documentary maker and a journalist who has been in a bit of Italy called Calabria, um, looking at what one judge is doing to try and... Break the family ties of the mafia. What about you? Um, well, so I spoke to the head of the US programme here at Chatham House, Xenia Wickett, about her recent report, Transatlantic Relations, um, Converging or Diverging. And uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff as well. But first, let's hear from Helen and yourself. So I'm here with Helen Fitzwilliam, who is a documentary maker and journalist and has written the cover story for the latest issue of The World Today. Um, thank you so much for coming in, Helen. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, so what are we here to talk about today? The mafia? Yes, well, it's I've, I've covered quite a few mafia. I've, I've been to... Naples and interviewed Roberto Saviano and, and covered the Camorra, which is betrayed in the long-running TV series The Camorra. And I've also been to Sicily. But this was the first time that I'd ever been to Calabria and encountered the Andrangheta, who are far more, far less well-known and far more discreet than the other mafia. They like to keep a very low profile. They like to keep under the radar, but in fact they are the most successful mafia in financial terms. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting because, yeah, of course, when, when one thinks of the mafia in Italy, I think of the Godfather, you think of Sicily. Um, so, I mean, where even is Calabria? Well, they're down in the toe of Italy, uh, which sort of faces in the southern part of Calabria or facing Sicily. And one of the first things I realised is it's actually very hard to get there. And that's what the mafia rather likes, because there isn't that much infrastructure. The trains are quite good. The road structures are erratic, because essentially the Andrangheta stole an awful lot of the money that was for the roads, which is quite traditional with the mafia in Italy. So there are a lot of obscure areas. There are mountain towns. There are tracks that you go down and forests and misty mountains. And in the piece that you wrote for us, you're looking at what the judiciary and the law in Italy are trying to do about these guys, and specifically one judge, isn't it? Yes, it's this extraordinary judge called Roberto Di Bella. And he is, he's been working in Calabria as he worked in Calabria as a prosecutor for about 20 years before he became a judge. And he worked in the youth tribunals. And I think because he's been working there for so long and he's very dedicated, he saw 
children coming in, adolescents coming in, he'd send them to jail. Then he'd see their children coming in, he'd send them to jail. And it just went through the generations in this endless cycle of violence. And he just thought, well, we've got to, you know, obviously locking them up isn't going to work. Well, mm. are there any other options? So perhaps empathy and understanding them might be a different way of dealing with the mafia. Um, it's rather counterintuitive because most of the Calabrians I met absolutely hated the mafia and couldn't stand the Andrangheta. But the judge decided there is an awful lot of suffering here, that adolescents within the family and women within the family suffer a great deal. So why not try and understand them and why not try and take them out of these rather inward-looking, suffocating, claustrophobic environments and give them an option to go elsewhere in Italy and discover a different kind of lifestyle, you know, that is legal, that allows them to pursue any kind of um, uh, creative, artistic or intellectual pursuit that they want rather than just being trained to follow a life of crime. Because I think before we before we talk about what the judge has actually been doing to keep everybody on tenterhooks, um, I I do think trying to understand actually what it's like to live in a f in that community, if you are amongst the mafia, you know, if you're part of the mafia family. So if you are a woman, if you are a child, we have this very glamorous idea, I think, of the mafia in many ways. Lots of money, lots of beautiful women, you know, lots of power. But actually, the stories that have come out about being a woman or being a child, are, I mean, are astonishing. Are there any in particular that really sort of hit you? There are many, and, and, and it's difficult because the Andrangheta is incredibly complex and inevitably one can only just scratch the surface of some of these stories. And because it's such a closed society and it's very difficult to infiltrate um, we only hear certain stories. I mean, it's there, 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 you know, because there are so many levels when it comes to women. I mean, there are some women who go off, go to university, get first-class honours in economics, or they become lawyers, and then they come back and they work within the criminal group. So to a certain extent, they have been very well educated and are in the sort of 21st century. But the stories... I heard were, I mean, I mean, I was astonished that there were arranged marriages mm -hmm. still and arranged marriages with women so young, uh, 13 or 14, and they have children very young as well, uh, almost instantaneously, because obviously if you're part of a criminal family, then you have to produce the next generation of criminals as soon as possible. And so they like to have large families. Uh, the rest of Calabria, it's quite interesting, they tend to just have one child these days due to economic problems but the mafia are the ones who have large families and um and then what happens is that they are just very expected to be sort of watched expected to behave in a certain manner and a lot of the time they seem to be almost imprisoned within the family uh, i mean they can once you're married that gives you a little more freedom but it's quite hard to have a normal job, although occasionally people will work because it's quite a good cover for the police. So if you work in a supermarket or work, or work elsewhere. But a lot of the time, the marriages are quite brutal. Women get beaten up on a regular basis. If they're brought up as daughters, the fathers tend to be quite brutal as well. I mean, for instance, there was a case when... A girl went shopping and was slightly late coming back from having gone shopping and her kind of father beat her until she fell to the floor. And, and 
Also, as soon as you're married, and if your husband is imprisoned, and often he can go to jail for 18 to 20 years, you cannot divorce him and you cannot leave him mm. and you cannot take a lover. If you take another lover, then you will be shot by your father or your brother or your cousin. They're sort of they're white widows, aren't they? Almost. Absolutely. They're, they're called the white widows. And so, I mean, to me, it, it is extraordinary. And, and I imagine there must be all this terrible post-traumatic stress syndrome for the women who escape. I think it must take them a very long time to even want to talk about it. I mean, there are cases, if you read letters, there are cases where... They were, you know, there was a love match. There was a love match, uh, you know, the daughter of a boss married uh, an up-and-coming young boss and they were really sort of happy together and loved the, you know, mafia lifestyle and had a great time and bought a beautiful villa and went on holiday abroad. So, you know, there are some stories where people Mm. really embrace it. But on the whole, the stories I heard were about women who live in a... A condition that seems so primitive and 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 archaic to mm. me that and, I was shocked. Well, so we should probably explain what the judge is doing. Well, his campaign is and and, and it's only started, you know, nearly eight years ago. And really what he decided was to take children away from their parents. Now this sounds quite drastic, but often both parents are in jail. Uh, or one of the parents are in jail. And it takes a really long time. It takes three to six months for a whole team of experts to determine the situation of the adolescent or the child to see if they are actually, you know, at risk in their home environment. So, you know, a lot of people have initially criticised the judge, but this is very well thought out, and you have to have an awful lot of evidence behind it before they do actually take a child away. And then what he does is that he takes them to, depending on what crime usually they've committed, with the boys it can be something more violent, with the girls it tends to be um, more civil cases where they wouldn't necessarily go to jail. And they take them outside the environment and suddenly if they're taken outside this rather claustrophobic mafia and drangata lifestyle, they just see a whole different world. They see normal Italian life, they go to art galleries, they go to pop concerts, they hang out with teenagers, they can flirt with whoever they want to. And often the psychologists who go with them, there's a psychologist and a social worker with each of them, encourage them in any way that they can. So suddenly you'll find someone who's been used uh, for a look lookout uh, on a drugs deal is reading books of philosophy, for instance. And I think that's just that adventure. They haven't seen Venice, they haven't seen Florence, and they're really sort of stimulated. I mean, they're adolescents where you try out a whole different gamut of personalities normally or try out different things. They take part in rock bands, they do theatre. And so it just opens their eyes to this alternative existence. But it, and it, just to be clear, I mean, it's not a school trip. You know, these these kids are fostered somewhere else. Exactly, they're fostered somewhere else. Depending on the crime they've committed, some of the boys go into institutions. Uh, so there's a, 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 a number of them in an institution. They have a psychiatrist them all the time. And it's a very subtle technique because none of this 
psychologists want to impose their views on them. The whole process is to encourage self-determination, to encourage them to choose what they want to do with the rest of their lives and to give them options and basically to give them as much fun as possible. And so what is interesting is that a lot of the anti-mafia prosecutors I met actually went to school with the people that they're mm. sending to prison now. So they know them. So it's almost as if one's been at school with people that now are, have got this incredible grip on your, on your region and also, you know, are, are shooting each other and causing mayhem due to the cocaine dealing and other skullduggery. Um, so it's very, it's really difficult. <laughs> it's such a lovely idea of skull not <laughs> um, uh, And how how many kids have has this have have gone on sort of this sort well, of? Well, only forty okay. so far, and and uh, only one boy uh, resorted to dealing in marijuana when he got back. So there's only one that that is a failure. Um, some boys have married outside. The, a girl outside the Indrangheta and had children are living completely legal lives. I mean, they're, they're, they don't cut off contact with the family because the other aspect of it, I mean, there may be a temporary cut off when they first go because a separation is quite a, a, a difficult juncture and the child needs a lot of support then. But really, it works so much better if they can get the mothers on side. Mm -hmm. The mothers are usually far more receptive and it also frees the women in that if their child is sent to another part of Italy, then that gives a justification for the wife to go with the children. So that gives her an escape route and a chance at redemption too. Mm -hmm. And an awful lot of mothers have taken that route as well as their children. They've followed their children. Even if it might be four or five years later when they've come out of jail, they've joined their daughter or joined their son outside Calabria. And um, But they do try to get the fathers who are in prison, the big bosses, on side too. Because they don't want the children torn between... Obviously, they love their parents, they love their family. Uh, but then they love their alternative life when they can choose what they want to do and have more self-determination. And so what you want to do is try and bring the two together. And what I was told, obviously it differs in each case, is that often the psychologists would go into jail, meet the bosses or communicate with the, the bosses and the fathers who are really against the whole scheme and just talk to them and say, we're giving your children far more opportunities they you know, look, they're blossoming. And don't you remember what it was like when you were a child? Do you want that suffering to happen to your own son or daughter? And in an odd way, even though the bosses may have the veneer of having no fear and being completely uh, lacking in vulnerability, of course a lot of them went through a terrible amount of trauma in their own childhood. You know, they saw relatives killed, they go to funerals, they see you know, the police coming in and, and, and with hoods and sort of waking them up in the middle of the night. Um, there's friction and turf wars or people being shot dead by use on mopeds. So they have a lot of trauma too, and although they may never admit it, over time, a lot of the fathers who objected to the idea originally come round to it when they realise actually they don't want that for their own son. But I also think that tension is fascinating because I can understand on an individual family basis you don't want your kids to go through what you've had to go through. But the mafia will only continue to function 
if there are generations coming up behind them. So this idea of disentangling those familial threads and powers running through an entire system, you know, at some point there, there presumably will be repercussions in some way when the people at the top suddenly realise that they don't have anybody underneath them anymore or they have a far fewer, far fewer people to choose from. You're absolutely right, because I was asking the anti-mafia prosecutors and I said, well, surely there must be some kickback mm. to the scheme. If you've got a boss's son who's supposed to take over the business, step into his shoes, and has been groomed to step in his shoes from the age of nine, aren't they going to be furious that he's gone? And with a daughter, daughters are often used for to forge allegiances with other, with other andrangheta families... Uh, to make them more powerful or to settle a feud. So you're losing valuable assets in business terms. And I think what they said to me is that they're quite philosophical. They think, well, we just have to see it as collateral damage in these cases. And remember, there could be two or three sons. Mm. So, you know, the second the second son could take over, the third son could take over. Um, I mean, they don't tend to bring people from outside to more senior positions. Uh, and the other aspect of it is that um, one of the female anti-mafia prosecutors told me that they're loosening the noose a little bit with women because they've noticed that they feel quite frustrated. So they're letting them have a little more freedom. Uh, because when you think of, when you compare them to the Camorra, uh, for instance, there are female bosses in the Camorra, there are transgender with the Camorra. I mean, the Camorra is quite up to date mm. when it comes to their criminal activities. Like the idea uh, of a woke mafia. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And um, so I, I think at the moment they see it as collateral damage. And also the numbers are very small. It's only 40. No one knows the exact amount of people. But, you know, there are thousands of thousands of Indrangheta families. And they're also global. So if you're missing someone who's next in line, maybe you can bring someone back from Australia or bring someone back from Canada. I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on this. I'm not quite sure what they would do in these particular circumstances. But I think, I think it's now on a scale that isn't large enough for it to make a huge impact. But I just wonder what's going to happen through the generations. I mean, the judge said to me that he really wanted to have them come back to Calabria so that they could behave like antibodies. Because if they're staying outside Calabria, then how is anything going to change? So they're most, and in fact, all the girls have decided to stay outside, uh, mainly because they have their freedom there and they don't want to come back. Mm. And um, so I, I think it's too early to tell what the impact will be. But on the other hand, they're going to extend the scheme to... Sicily and the Cosa Nostra and also to um, Naples and the Camorra. So to a certain extent, you know, this idea of deconstructing the family seems a really clever one. Mm. It seems to work, even though it's only on a small scale. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, so you can read Helen's piece in the latest issue of The World Today. Um, also, we have we've published some letters uh, within it from family members to the to this judge saying... Thank you so much. Um, but they're really, they're really heartfelt and really interesting. So would recommend having a read. Now I'm joined by Zenia Wickett, head of the US and Americas program and dean of the academy at Chatham House. Uh, 
Xenia's recent Chatham House report is titled Transatlantic Relations, Converging or Diverging. Xenia, thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, So I thought I'd begin with this report. Um, It's a fascinating read. Could you give us a sort of brief overview of what's involved? Sure. We started with a premise. I started with a premise that if you look at some of the policy choices that have been taking place over the last few years in the US and in the principal European countries, specifically France, Germany and the UK, you're beginning to see a divergence. Let me give you an example. Um, The AIIB, uh, America very much wanted its allies not to sign up and Britain led the charge Except in Luxembourg, Britain led the charge to sign up. Uh, you look at the Snowden revelations, uh, resonated very differently in Europe and the US. And so we started asking the question of, are we at a moment now where the US and Europe are fundamentally diverging? And the word I use is structurally diverging, i.e. not diverging in a cyclical manner, which has happened many times before over the last 70 years. We've had our ups and our downs. But actually, are we, are we diverging structurally i.e. is this going to be a divergence for the long term? And of course, if we are diverging structurally, what are the consequences? And I will say, personally, I went into it thinking, based on my read of international affairs at the moment, we are diverging structurally. What we found over the course of two years, we did a number of case studies. Snowden revelations was one of them. We looked at the Russia sanctions. We looked at the AIIB. Um, We did a number of scenarios, so we essentially created a crisis and brought together Europeans and Americans to see how they responded to that crisis. We we looked at a crisis with Iran uh, and the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. We looked at a crisis between Russia and Turkey. And from those events, we essentially collated information about how, how are people making decisions about how they choose their foreign policy. Um, and distilled from that, essentially, 12 factors that are clearly important factors that influence foreign policy decision making in the US and Europe. And they range from the obvious interests, you know, mm-hmm. our interests uh, in, in the US and in Europe, geography, where do you sit, therefore changes the way you see the world, history changes the way you see the world, to demographics. Your demographic makeup changes how you respond. So we did that. We identified 12 factors and then we looked at how those factors are going to be changing in the future. And from that, we can say, okay, is, for example, demographics changing in the US and in Europe? And is it changing in permanent ways, in different ways? And so what we identified was essentially we we have a grid that says, here are some structural changes. Here are some cyclical changes. Here are things that are diverging and here are things that are converging and status quo. And we identified four, excuse me, three elements that are structural and diverging. Demographics, uh, some natural resources, specifically energy and food, and international institutions and the role of international institutions. And so the conclusion we reach is that on the other nine factors, there's either status quo or there's convergence. Only three are we diverging. Is that important? Yes, of course it's important. That's where our attention needs to be placed. But the idea that we, as as two continents, are fundamentally diverging in very serious ways is vastly overwrought. So a positive outcome. Could we drill down a bit more, however, on these three where there are some areas of divergence? And just could you give us some more background on, on 
how and why this divergence is taking place in these three areas? Sure, absolutely. I mean, let, let, let me run through them fairly quickly. I mean, on the demographic side, uh, it's very clear if you spend time in the US or you spend time here in Europe. Um, in the US, there's all sorts of statistics that are showing that uh, America is going to be a minority, uh, majority minority country in the coming decades. What, what does that mean? That means that there's still an awful lot of particularly Latinos and to a lesser extent Asians coming into the United States. Um, what does that mean? That means American, America has a demographic and a diaspora that is pulling America towards Latin America, towards Asia. Look at Europe. Europe is different. Europe is taking all sorts of refugees, migrants and others, but mostly it's from the Middle East and it's other parts of Asia. Um, and that means Europe is being pulled in those directions uh, in, in policy terms. Thus, you look at the United States, you look at Europe, and they're getting pulled in different directions. So that's demographics. On energy, another great example, America is becoming more energy self-sufficient post the shale gas revolution. This is not happening in Europe. Demand is, is increasing in Europe and you're not getting independence in the same way. And so, again, there's a divergence in terms of energy resources and access to energy resources that changes policy decisions vis-a-vis -vis Russia, vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East. And then on international institutions, it's a slightly different kettle of fish. In international institutions, what we're finding is when we played out scenarios, often, often, uh, both Americans and Europeans would fall back on international agreements, international institutions, norms. So in the Iran case, they were falling back on the JCPOA. What was agreed in the JCPOA? That's how we stay together. In the Russia-Turkey um, case, they fell back on the on the IAEA and the IAEA being able to make judgments um, the UN, excuse me, not the IAE, the UN being able to make judgments, NATO. Um, and so the importance of these institutions is enormous, and yet they're being devalued. Um, yes. They're becoming less relevant. So it's these three areas where you can actually see a clear divergence of interests, divergence of perspectives, divergence or, or, or weakening of the institutions that actually makes it much harder for the US and Europe to come together on policy. Now, to a lot of commentators, this I mean, this may be media hysteria, but to a lot of commentators, the last two years have seemed pretty turbulent, um, possibly more turbulent than than recent decades. And I wondered, with reference to these workshops and these scenarios that you came up with two years ago, um, I wondered whether if you were to run these tests today, would you come up with different crises? And if so, where do you think the pressure points would be? Sure. I, I think what is for me powerful about about this study is you know we started this in the obama administration and we finished it in the um in in the trump administration what we've tried to do with this is get beyond the what we call cyclical issues get beyond the just the politics the personalities one of the other issues in here is leadership personalities how important is leadership personalities of course that's what we are paying attention to in the media at the moment but leadership is cyclical in democracies anyway, um, it's cyclical. And you can look at Pew polling, for example, that shows that uh, the international uh, community can distinguish between a president, a country, and the policies of that country. Uh, and so while it means, just to take the current circumstances, while it means that what we're going through at the moment is a rocky period because we do have leadership personalities who... Um, 
are not typical and are harder to work with, perhaps. But it is a period. It is cyclical. We need to get beyond the cyclical and move into the structural and focus on the structural. And that really is the message that I hope people take away from this report, is that for all of the media hype and the concern, it is incredibly important to differentiate between what is noise and what is fact in a set in a, in a way and it is the facts it is the long-term trends that's where we need to be paying full attention to not the noise the white noise that's going on in the media now these three areas that you say in your report need sort of extra attention is there a willingness and an understanding that these areas um, need to be addressed in policy circles do you feel like that's something that's being worked on or is everything kind of on pause at the moment it's a great question. Um, there were recommendations in the report. Um, the recommendations range from um, on the demogra- to, to address the demographic um, challenge. We need to be having more open visa rules between the US and Europe. We need to have more transfer of people, whether it's holidays or work, backwards and forwards, because the way to converge interests is to converge understanding and converge perceptions of, uh, of interests. The way to do that is to transfer people back and forward, um, forward between the two continents. You know, we made a recommendation on energy, for example. You know, America is increasingly uh, exporting energy. In recent years, it's been able to get more from Asian buyers than from European buyers. But I make the argument that actually, if America were to were willing to uh, sell more to Europe to reinforce Europe. Europe's energy market, then that would again cause convergence rather than divergence. Um, and on, on international institutions, one of the recommendations, of course, is we need to get better at both explaining what they do, supporting them on a political basis and publicly, um, both rhetorically and in action. And some of them need to be reformed and we need to get down to reforming those institutions. So there are recommendations. Um, are people doing them? It kind of it, it depends a little on, on what the recommendation is. It is, you know, very hard in the United States to have a debate on immigration um, and on you know, loosening visa, visa rules. Actually, it's pretty hard here in Europe as well. Um, you know, so that that's a really tough one. Um, you know, international institutions have become very political in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, the, these are hard things to do politically, but they are really important things to do. And we can do them without, I'm not talking about lots of funds, you know, lots lots of new money. Um, so, so these should, there needs to be political will to do them on both sides. This is, this is a problem on both sides of the Atlantic. It's so difficult these days to, to do a, a politically minded podcast without bringing up Brexit. So here I am. I've got 17, <laughs> 17 minutes in and like, here we are. Brexit. Time for the Brexit question. But what strikes me in this report and the way that it's framed is obviously that we're talking here about the United States on one hand and Europe on the other. And I wondered whether the UK's continuing decision um, to leave the European Union is going to have an impact. Do you think these issues will increasingly become sort of the United States and the EU working together on these issues and the UK is kind of watching or are they, is it still Europe? It, it's a really great, great question. And one of the things that we would have loved to do had time and resources allowed would be to actually delve a little bit deeper into the divisions within Europe. 
Um, so what we really identified and focused on is the divisions between the US and Europe. And when I say Europe, again, I just want to emphasize we were mostly focusing on France, Germany and the UK as being the three big powers within Europe that essentially move Europe in certain directions at some level. But we would have liked to look at some of the divisions within Europe. And, and, and there will be cases where the divisions within Europe are actually greater than the divisions between the United States and Europe. And so uh, what is to your specifics? So, so, I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is sometimes the divisions are elsewhere. Uh, and that's in incredibly important. The other thing I would say is that um, we didn't specifically look at Brexit, except insofar as kind of understanding the context. And the context is is that you you know in the, on on the American side you have a new new not so new president who is unlike any that America has had before um, in his style, uh, in his engagement, in his in, in what he perceives to be important trade positions and environmental positions, etc. But we should not think that the challenges are only on the United States. End. The context on the European side is, of course. Europe is right now absolutely transfixed by Brexit and managing the Brexit process. And so one of the other recommendations, which is that Europe really needs to step up, particularly in the security area, but also beyond that, but particularly in the security area, Europe finds incredibly hard to do because right now it's got every single ounce of attention focused on Brexit. The idea that it would focus outside of its own borders um, and what's going on in the rest of the world is absolutely anathema when you don't have enough resources to do that. So there are challenges on both sides. And the big the big challenge of Brexit is that, you know, Europe is once again, um, if I might say, contemplating its navel rather than looking at the world. If transatlantic relations were to diverge in the future, even on a cyclical level, is the assumption that they would be replaced by strengthened relations with other countries or other regions? And if so, do you feel China's One Belt, One Road project, for example, is one area where that might that might occur, where we might see Europe look east rather than looking west? It's a great question. The transatlantic nations have driven forward global stability, uh, not always perfectly, I hasten to add, but have driven forward global stability for 70-odd years. Um what does the world look like 70 years from now or 40 years from now or even a decade from now? Within the transatlantic relationship, what we've seen from the United States pre-Trump um, and with Trump, so this is not a, a, a Trump phenomena, we've seen America diversify its relationship within Europe. So, you know, sitting here in the UK, we like to think of ourselves as having a special relationship with the United States or an essential relationship with the United States. And this is true. But you know what? I hate to say it, but Germany has a special and essential relationship with the US, as does France, uh, for example, as does Poland. So America's really diversified its relationship. And if it wants to work on economics or Russia, it doesn't look to the UK. It looks to Germany. If it wants to work on parts of Africa, it looks to France. Um, and that's really important to remember. And so that's one trend that's taking place. The other trend that's taking place, and I think this really is happening at a multilateral level as well, is we are moving away from our traditional multilateral kind of devolution to multilateral action through the UN, through NATO, to slightly more amorphous, and people hate this expression because we remember the Iraq war, uh, to ad hoc groups or coalitions of the willing. You know, if you look at recent operations in Libya, for example, um, even in Afghanistan, 
it wasn't just NATO. It was a NATO coalition plus some, minus some. Um, and that's the mo- direction we're moving uh, into a world that is apolar, that doesn't really have a pole in quite the same way, that different coalitions come together when they have the interest, will and capabilities to do so, to act. Uh, in that world, America is a necessary but not sufficient actor. You can argue a little more weakly, I would argue, I, I would think, that Europe is a necessary but not sufficient actor. But I would also argue that China is a necessary and not sufficient actor for most of these challenges. India, too. Japan, possibly. Um, and so I think the world is very different today and is moving in a direction that is fundamentally different where you can't rely on the two traditional actors, Europe and the United States, to come together. It is a is a larger cacophony. It is far more complex. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the world will be any weaker. We might be stronger for it. Zenia Wicket, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks to Zenia Wicket for joining us there. Her report, Transatlantic Relations, Converging or Diverging, is available on the Chatham House website. And that brings us to the end. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe via iTunes or leave us a review if you're feeling generous and follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimpson. And you've been listening to Undercurrents. Undercurrents.